Today's reading is Mark 12, 28 through 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Catherine. My name is Beth Balmer. I am one of the pastors here at Grace, and we're always super pumped on the first Sunday of our month to have our King's Quest kids with us. King's Quest, can I get a what wet? Thank you. Uh, glad to have you guys with us. You're part of our family. We're we get to worship with you, and you get to sort of see what it is that we're participating in on a Sunday morning. So thanks for being here. Um, also, in, in other family news today, Brian and Liz Clements wanted um, us to announce that the adoption of their kids is finally being finalized. Right there. So, Raciel and Talia, welcome to our family. We're super pumped to have you part of this family as well as part of um, Brian and Liz's family. Liz just told me she really specifically wanted me to say thank you to this church family because they're not sure how they would have been able to, to go through this process without the support and the backing of this community. So, specifically, thank you to those of you that really came around them in this time. And like I said, welcome to you guys. Let me pray before we dive into the word this morning. Lord, will you open my lips to show forth your praise, and will you open our ears to hear what you have to say, and open our hearts to receive and respond to whatever word you have to bring us this morning. In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray, amen. So the scripture that Catherine just read, we heard this morning is a very familiar one to most of us, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. It kind of rolls off the tongue, I think, without us giving an awful lot of um, attention sometimes to the weight and the implication of what it actually calls for. And the word that stuck out to me as I've been sitting with this text all week is the word all. So the question I've been wrestling with that I want to bring before you today is, is Jesus important or compelling enough that we are willing to give him all to fully surrender to him? And if he is, then how might fully surrendering lead us to live lives that actually compel others to Jesus? 
So let's start with a question. Kids, you can answer this question too. Is there a person in your life who has made Jesus real to you, who has made Jesus really compelling to you? And if so, what is it about that person that you have found to be compelling? Think about that for a second. Who's the person that comes to mind? I know some really great theologians, right? I know some very talented book writers. I know some really incredibly great sermon givers. I think I know some of the best worship leaders in the world, but when I think about compelling Christians, I think of people who are living life in a way that is different, that is exciting. People whose life is about something that's much bigger than the work they do, even if it's interesting or good work. People who are about something other than their family or their friends or their hobbies. I recently watched a, a TV series called The Chosen. Some of you have heard of it. Um, the Chosen is a TV drama based on the life of Jesus as he begins his ministry. And I got to admit, at first I was a little bit skeptical. Um, Christian TV shows aren't generally known for being like Oscar winners and, you know, having the, the A-grade actors in them. But this, this uh, TV show, this, the first series basically shows how Jesus collects his disciples and, and some of the miracles and the parables that we're probably very, very familiar with. And I've watched many TV series where I'm so caught up in the story that I can't, you know, wait to get home from work the next day so I can watch the next episode. And I find my mind is on the show a lot, right? Like, embarrassingly so, when it's just a medical drama and I'm, you know, worried about whether Derek and Meredith are ever going to finally get it together. <laughs> or if the FBI agent will figure out that the people living across the street from him are Russian spies, right? It's giving you some insight into what, where I've been trafficking the last couple of years. Are there TV shows? There's probably TV shows that you're watching right now that you're sort of thinking about on your day-to-day, -day, right, the next day, and you can't wait to get home and watch the next episode. So I have to admit, I was really surprised when I found myself thinking about the characters in The Chosen the next day and looking forward to seeing the next episode, even though I actually know what happens in this story, right? I've read scripture. I know what Jesus does. I know what's coming next. But what I noticed as I was allowing my brain space to be spent thinking about Jesus and his disciples, I was kind of falling a bit more in love with Jesus. And I don't mean that actor. I mean actual Jesus himself because of what I was hearing and leaning into in looking at these parables and these miracles that he was doing. The show actually helped me to see why the disciples would drop everything to follow him. And of course, the no-duh, this isn't just a fictional character. This is the same Jesus that I've actually claimed to have dropped everything to follow too. Usually we begin to love things after we've tasted and seen and experienced that it's good, right? And after we've tasted and experienced, then we begin to want more of that thing. It leads to desire, which leads to a, a deepening of our love for it, and a passion for the thing might even develop. Like Wordle, I've heard that's the new word game that's all the rage. Or baseball, for some of you, not for me. Or the next book in the Harry Potter series when they were first coming out, right? You couldn't wait to get onto the next one. We begin to dream about the thing. We think about it when we're away from it. We're not able to wait to get back to that thing. Like when my son plays Xbox, he doesn't seem to ever get to the point where he's satisfied, right? Yeah, you know what, that's enough. I think I've played my full quotient of Xbox for my life. No, every time he plays it, he wants to play it more. Am I wrong? <laughs> Often this is the same with people. 
When you experience something intriguing or compelling about a person, you want to spend more time with them to get to know them more, more about them. When you first meet someone you're drawn to, you want to hang out more, so you spend more time. The relationship deepens, maybe you journey through some difficult things together, which deepens the relationship even further, and you just keep going back for more. Who's a person, kids especially, who's a person who you look forward to spending time with? It could be a grandma that spoils you rotten, or a friend who makes you laugh more than any others. It could be a person who, every time you leave, you feel encouraged, you feel like they said some good things about you, they see things and they name things in you that make you feel good. Generally speaking, we want to be around people who make us feel a certain way or help us feel like a better person as a result of being with them. And I think we can treat Jesus like this too. It's easy to be around Jesus when we focus on the parts that make us feel good about ourselves, knowing we're forgiven, knowing we're loved, knowing we're accepted, knowing we're chosen. These are all parts of what Jesus offers us, and they make us feel good about ourselves. What do we do when we run into the harder parts of our relationship with him? Like the parts where he calls us to surrender everything, to leave things behind us in order to be his follower. And Jesus doesn't hedge on this or do any kind of bait and switch. He's really clear up front when he calls his disciples that there will be a cost. And what's the cost? Everything. Everything. Let's turn to Luke 5. It's page 860 in the Bibles underneath your seat. In Luke 5, we see Jesus calling the first disciples, okay? He's by a lake. Jesus is by a lake. And he tells these experienced fishermen who've literally been fishing all night long without catching a single thing, but he tells them to put their nets out again, probably rolling their eyes a little bit, but they do it. And I wonder why. Like, why did they obey? Jesus is a carpenter, and he's telling these experienced fishermen, you know, go ahead and do something. I wonder if maybe they'd already heard about some of his miracles or heard some of his teaching or they'd already begun to notice or experience something compelling about Jesus that made them do an extra shift after they've already done a really long and completely unsuccessful night shift. Look at verse 5. After Jesus tells them to put out their nets, Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so... I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. It's an interesting response. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid, from now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. They left everything and followed him, just like that. And then a few verses later, 
Jesus speaks to Levi. Levi's sitting in his wee tax collecting shop, and he says, you, come here, follow me. Verse 28, Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Just like that. There was, there is something so compelling about the person of Jesus that people will leave everything to follow him. And most of us in this room have already experienced that, right? At some point in our life, Jesus pointed at us and said, you, come here, follow me. And we left behind our old ways of being to step into this new life, a new way of being that he offered us. For some of us, that was a radical and obvious transformation. We gave up addictions or cheating or getting drunk or punching people when we're angry at them. For some of us, maybe it was less radically obvious. I don't think I had fully stepped into my capacity as a sinner at the age of seven, but that's mostly because circumstances don't exactly afford much at the age of seven. But I was still surrendering my life, my whole life, my future life to God, and saying, I want to turn away from my ways and only walk in yours. But this turning away from, this surrendering, it's not a once and for all experience. Sanctification, becoming more holy and more Christ-like, it's an ongoing process. And our journey towards Christ means that we're constantly gonna be running into things that vie for our attention and our affections. So the question before us really is, are we compelled enough by Christ that we still prioritize him when we're confronted with things that compete for our affection for him. A couple of weeks ago, um, about 1.30 in the morning, one of my kids called out, and I, as a dutiful and incredible mother, jumped out of bed and went to attend to the child in question. And as I got back into bed, I knew I was going to be preaching this sermon on surrender, and I thought, oh, that's, that's a great sermon illustration. You know, what, what mother, what parent wouldn't get out of bed whenever a child calls? In the same way, you know, if God called us out of bed to pray or something in the middle of the night, you know, what disciple of, of, of God would not follow that call and, and dutifully respond? And immediately, three words dropped into my mind. How about now? And I was like, how about now what? <laughs> how about you come and spend some time with me in prayer? And I was like, so I'm faced with this choice. I can either get out of bed and go into my cold living room and kneel on the floor and pray, or I can stay in this nice, warm, comfortable bed with my fuzzy blankie. And I thought, I'm too comfortable. And then I was like, oh wait, that's the sermon illustration right there, right? <laughs> Dang it, we are often too comfortable to set aside what we're doing if and when God calls us to something that's less comfortable and quite frankly, less appealing in that moment. I wanna point back to the sermon or the scripture reading that we heard this morning from Mark 12. In your Bibles, that's on page 848. We're gonna turn and look at that again together. In this passage, Jesus is asked, which of the commandments is the greatest one, the most important one? And Jesus responds, the most important one is, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the teacher that was asking him this question said, yeah, well said, teacher. You're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Listen again to that last night line. More important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is getting at an attitude of the heart, a posture over and above the practices and the quantifiable actions that we might show our service to God with. And this is exactly what Jesus kept disrupting in the Pharisees, isn't it? The Pharisees in Jesus' day were the most religious, the most devout, the most committed to God's word and to following his word to the letter of the law to the nth degree in every way visible to the outside eye. Jesus spent a lot of his three years in ministry addressing the hypocrisy between their outside actions and their inside heart. When you're devoted to something, it's not just your actions that show that devotion, right? Your mind and your heart are there no matter where you find yourself. If you're a gymnast and you know that you're in training, like to go to the Olympics someday, say, you find your mind wandering to how to you know, perfect that handstand or that floor routine you've been working on, even when you're in a math class and you're supposed to be paying attention to your teacher, right? Some of you guys are playing baseball. Some of you are like all-star baseball. You find your thoughts wandering to that even the day after a game. Maybe your mind's wandering back to how that game went yesterday and what you might have been able to do differently. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've committed to his call to love the least, to act differently, to go into the world and make disciples of all men, to pray for the sick, to love your enemies and partner with him in seeing his kingdom come and his will be done, then that's where your mind and your heart will be circling all day, every day. Matthew 5, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Meaning, the places where we invest our time, our money, our energy, and our brain space, they do reveal where our greatest affections lie. And this brings us back to our passage in Mark 12. And I think that what this passage is pointing to is our prioritizations. Love the Lord with all your heart. This is getting at our affections. Who or what would you do anything for? Who or what do you long to be with? Who or what has your mind already drifted off to in the last 10 minutes of this sermon? These reveal where our heart and our affections are. Love the Lord with all your soul. I think this is tied up with our identity, the bits that make you, you. The things that we rely on or cling to as our foundational roots. For me, fundamental part of that might be being, you know, tough and fairly unemotional. What do I do with that? When Jesus starts wanting to bring transformation to those areas, and I feel like I'm having to let go of part of the image that I've worked hard to maintain for a very long time. Love the Lord with all your mind. 
Jake touched on this a couple of weeks ago when he preached. We are a fairly intelligent, intellectual group of people, right? I am not belittling intelligence or our competencies. Knowing and learning are gifts from God. He made us inquisitive, he made us clever, he made us able to solve problems and calculate formulas and understand history and science and theology and so on. But when we rely on that as our source of strength and as a substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit, we are in danger of misprioritizing our intelligence. Love the Lord with all your strength. I think this ties to our time, our money, our energy. What are we building into? What do we spend our energy and our mental energy on? Is it spent worrying about our nest eggs, our financial investments, our kids' futures? Is our time, which I think is one of our most coveted assets around here, is our time, does it belong to us, or is it available for God's use? Another quick story. I am... Um, Fridays are my day off, so once a week I get to go and do yoga. And it's definitely a, a, a very private place. Um, I see it as a place that I get to go, go and be completely not needed by anyone, right? I don't tell any of you where I am so nobody can find me. I literally don't even take my phone to the place so that even if there's an emergency at the school, I'm not on call. Like, this is my private, separated time. And so I was there a couple weeks ago, and I, I was laying, waiting for the class to begin, and I felt like the Holy Spirit nudged me and said, I want to invade this space too. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is my space. This is my, this is my private time. And actually, I view it as my private time with God, right? I don't, it's not like I'm separated from God. I actually view it as a way that I engage my body and worship. And it's a very specific but, but protected time. And I felt like the Holy Spirit say, no, there's someone here I want you to talk to. Oh, and I literally laughed out loud. <laughs> and I was like, okay, fine. Then you're going to have to show me who, and you're going to have to tell me what to say. So I spend the whole class, you know, waiting for this, the ray of sunshine to, you know, come down on the person and, uh, you know, to be lit up so I know who it is. And finally, I do see this kid, and he kind of has this, like, sad demeanor about him. Like, I think that's the person who I'm supposed to talk to. Spend the whole class talking myself out of this. I'm like, Lord, if he gets up and bolts, I am not chasing him down the street, right? You know, this has to be really obviously from you. So the class ends, and I, you know, start slowly rolling up my mat, and I look over. This guy's just sitting, staring, looking around. I'm like, dang it, I slow, slow as I can, put my shoes on. Everybody else is gone at this point. This guy is still just like, ooh, having his moment. Okay, fine. Fine, Holy Spirit. So I start walking over to him, and on the way over, I'm like, what do I have to lose? What do I have to lose, right? I might look like a weirdo. I'm never going to see this guy again, probably. What does it matter? I got nothing to lose in this situation. So I, I go up to him. I say, this might be weird, but uh, tell him what I think I'm supposed to tell him. And he looks at me, and he goes, it's not that weird. He goes, I keep on having these kind of religious meetings, these religious encounters, these religious experiences like this one. Fair enough. So, you know, I say what I have to say to him and go on my way. Did he, did he go home and give his life to Jesus? I don't know. Did he go home and maybe have another rel religious experience, as he called it, later with somebody else that day? I don't know. All I know is that my time was God's time in that moment. 
And even my time needs to be fully surrendered to God so that he can use it for his purposes. Back to Mark 12, you'll notice that the command is to love the Lord with all of these arenas that are named here, not just little bits of each of them. I was, trust me, much more interested in preaching a sermon on partial surrender, but I had a really hard time finding any scriptures to kind of go with that. <laughs> but here's the thing, I think we actually can partially surrender. I think Jesus gives us a choice. You know the story of the rich young ruler? It's back in Mark 10, just a couple pages before. A rich young man comes and asks Jesus what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And he even claims that he's followed all the main commandments that are given in the Old Testament. And Jesus looks at him and says, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven, and then you come and follow me. Mark 10 verse 22 says, at this the man's face fell because he had great wealth, and he walked away. Jesus didn't mandate that this guy surrender. He suggested it, and the rich young ruler couldn't do it. Listen to the contrast in Matthew 13, 44. It's on the screen behind me. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered up. And in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Have you ever thought about how extreme and ludicrous that is? This guy bought a field, and he had no money left. He didn't even have any furniture left to locate in the field. Didn't even have any sheets to build like a fort or a tent out of it. Or the guy with the pearl. You can't even really do anything with a pearl, right? He couldn't even buy a display case for his pearl because he'd already sold everything to buy the pearl. But what they gave up to buy the treasures was not a concern because what they received, and the passage says that these are metaphors for the kingdom of heaven itself, what they received was so invaluable compared to what was surrendered. Their surrendering points to their prioritization. Side note, I wonder if this is why the practice of tithing is actually so formational for us. Tithing is the act of where we give um, a portion of our financial income to God's kingdom work. And let's be honest, you've heard it before, but God doesn't really need our money, does he? But our open-handedness in giving a portion of our income to him reveals our trust in him, and it's a physical representation of letting go of our control of that arena and essentially saying, I love you, God, more then I love whatever the 10% or whatever of my salary could afford me with this money. I also want to pause here and point out that if there's something we cannot surrender, then that thing might have become an idol. Something, an idol being something that has more importance to us than God himself. Let me give you a quick fire idol test to try on yourself right now. If God were to say to you, I want you to give this thing, whatever, up for life, and if you would struggle to say yes, then I would suggest that that thing might have become an idol because it has a higher priority than God's ways 
Imagine if God said, I want you to give up half your screen time or half your Xbox time or your TV watching shows at night. A few weeks ago, again, don't ever offer to preach a sermon on, you know, something like surrender because you just start getting nudged left, right, and center. A few weeks ago, I felt like the Holy Spirit was nudging me to give up alcohol for a season. And my immediate response was, oh, no, this isn't, no, this isn't an area for discussion, right? I thought, thought we agreed this was something you'd never ask of me. I'm Irish, right? You know, that's my excuse for everything. I'm Irish. You wouldn't ask this of me. And then I realized, like, no, that's what I'd agreed. I don't have a drinking problem. I don't drink too much. I'm not using it as a crutch or a comfort thing. But I realized in that moment that if God actually did ask me to give it up for life, I'd probably say no. And I think I have the liberty to say no, but in saying no, now we have a problem. And the problem is that that means there's a whole area of my life that is off limits to God, an area that's under my control, not submitted to his lordship, and that's a problem for a disciple of Jesus. I think what God is highlighting here is that sometimes I need to surrender my freedom to do something if the freedom itself has become more of a priority than my being fully surrendered to God. So what's all the surrendering for? What does Jesus offer that would even compel us to surrender everything? John 10, 10, Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus offers us the most fruitful, the most satisfying, the most complete and full way of living. John 4, when Jesus is talking with the Samaritan woman at the well, he says, if you drink the water I give you, you will never thirst again. But here's the problem. I think that sometimes we correlate that fullness, that abundance with things like our freedom, our liberty, our total ease, our comfort, even our financial stability. And that doesn't really line up with Jesus' teaching that his way is the narrow way. Or the fact that giving things up is just plain hard, let's be honest. Prioritizing Jesus' ways is often the harder choice. We run into this a lot in Paul's writings in the New Testament. Several passages of scripture that call us to ways of being that are quite frankly, just not easy. We turn with me to Colossians 3. It's on page 984 in your Bibles. I'm going to read in Colossians 3, starting at verse 1. It says, in my translation, Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. These are familiar verses, and we read these, and we say, yes, 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 amen. And then verse 5. So, therefore, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, 
sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Let's look back at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Most translations say this, this phrase, earthly nature. These things that are listed here are innate in humans because of the fall. It's not the way that God intended us to be. But sin disrupted his creation, and then these things become part of us. But the good news is right there in verse 9 and 10. It's possible because when we choose to follow Christ, we can take off these old ways of being and put on a new way of being. The freedom we find in Christ, it's freedom from the bondage of these old ways of being, and it's the freedom to choose a better way, the Christ way. Becoming like Christ, becoming more sanctified and purified from the old self, as Paul keeps referring to it, that's what our surrendering leads to. Church, we are supposed to live differently from the world. We are supposed to be countercultural in the ways that we live, the ways we act, the ways we think, the ways we spend our time, we spend our money, what we give our brain space to. Why then would we keep dabbling back in the things that we've been liberated from? 1 Peter 4 picks up this theme too. Just show me that slide, Eli. He says in verse 3, you have already spent enough time in the past doing things like this, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and idolatry. And I'm going to pause here because most of us disregard lists like this in the New Testament right away because we don't find ourselves frequently practicing the actions that come to mind when we hear these words. And I'll choose my words carefully here because of my younger audience. But let me suggest this. If there are things that we are watching on our nightly TV show, because we have the freedom and the liberty to choose to watch a nightly TV show, but if these are things that you would not watch in real life, especially if Jesus was sitting next to you, then I wonder if there are places that we're giving our minds to that compete with the call to live holy lives, which means lives that are set apart, lives that are different, lives that cultivate and long for purity. Is our watching these things any different from engaging in the act when Jesus so clearly says that it is not just the outward action, it's the heart behind it that's the problem? Jesus says, if you even look at a woman lustfully, Set your minds, set your hearts, Paul says in Colossians 3, on things above. I want to bring us back to the question of what all the surrendering is for anyway. I said a moment ago that it's partly to bring us into the fullness of the life that Jesus offers. I think it's also an invitation to step fully into partnering with him in his mission for the world, using your hands, your feet, your mouth, your time, etc. When we're fully surrendered, every location that we find ourselves in becomes an opportunity for God to bring his kingdom more fully. 
Remember the story I told you about my sleep being interrupted a few weeks ago? Well, I did get out of bed that night. I was like, all right, God, I'll give you five minutes. Ended up somehow giving him nine. <laughs> but nothing happened. Like, the Shekinah glory did not descend in my living room. No mystical thing occurred during those nine minutes. But I went back to bed, and then I proceeded to have a really profoundly vivid dream. And when I shared that dream the next day with the people who the dream was about, it seemed to confirm something that these people were feeling like God was inviting them into for something specific in their church. So my surrendering even my sleep ended up being used by God somehow to accomplish something for his purposes. In my yoga story, I got to partner with God because suddenly my space became his space. So I would suggest that a second reason for this full surrender we're invited into is so that we're available for God, available to partner with Jesus in the ways that he wants to bring his kingdom more fully in and around and through you. If all of life is God's, and if all of my life is surrendered to him because I've committed to following Jesus, then that means that all areas of my life become interruptible to him. Jesus was totally interruptible. So many times in the Gospels we see that Jesus is on his way to do something and somebody else comes on the scene and he stops. He'll stop to heal someone or he'll stop to notice someone that everybody else is walking by. He was available because his time was God's time, not his own. When we feel entitled to our time, our space, we'll have a harder time being interruptible for God's purposes in that arena, right? If I'm entitled to my hard-earned salary, then it becomes harder for God to have access to my bank account when he needs some of it to bless or help somebody else out. If I'm entitled to my screen time at the end of a long, hard day of work because I need to relax and let my mind numb out for a bit, then it becomes harder for God to have access to my mind because it's now being filled and relaxed by something other than him. If I'm entitled to my yoga time on Fridays, that means that that hour is off limits for him to use me to accomplish some of his purposes for one of his children during that hour. And Jesus isn't a killjoy. That's not what this surrendering is about. He's not here to, you know, dampen our fun. He doesn't invite us into a fully surrendered life so that he can control us like puppets or stop us from having fun. He's the designer of life. He knows what brings us fulfillment. He knows what will make us thrive. He knows what will make us laugh and give us deep-rooted joy, not just like surface-level comedy. He knows that some of the earthly pleasures and temptations give a feeling of pleasure, but it does not last. And they often bring harm to others or to us when we engage in them. Jesus offers us the fullness of life, a drink that deeply satisfies and replenishes, food that fills us and nourishes us, and we so often settle for Taco Bell because it's convenient or predictable or cheap and it immediately meets the need, and then we don't even have room for the seven-course, wine-paired, organic, farm-to-table, delectable feast that he has carefully and lovingly prepared for us. There is so much more than most of us have tasted and experienced. And Jesus is right here, and he's wanting and waiting to join us in it. 
If you don't even know the Jesus that I'm talking about this morning, I would love to introduce you to him. Or there's loads of other people here that know him really well and would love to make that introduction too. Be delighted to tell you about him and his ways. If you feel this morning like your eyes are starting to kind of be opened after a long sleep and you're thinking, where have I been? What have I been doing? I want to fully wake up and, you know, fan this flame of passion for Jesus again that feels like it's kind of been dampened for so long. We would love to pray into, into that with you too. Um, and I know we're actually about to move into bread and cup, but I have asked if some of the prayer team would be available at the side exit doors in the middle to pray with anybody who wants to pray into that kind of prayer, um, kind of longing for that passion to be stirred up in us again. If you feel like there are areas that the Holy Spirit is nudging you this morning to surrender, then I would encourage you to share that with somebody because we need one another for accountability and for support for that kind of thing. So I want to leave you with three potential prayers that you might pray this morning. The first one is this, I want to want you. Some of you are listening and you're like, I hear her. I don't really relate to that. Sounds good or ideal, but I, I'm not even there. Maybe we need to even pray that we would want to want Jesus more than we currently do. Or a second prayer might be, I want more. I want to know you more. I want to experience more of you. I want to step more into what this partnership looks like. That's, that's the second prayer to pray this morning. A third prayer might be to boldly ask the Holy Spirit if there are areas that are in need of surrender that he might shine a light on. So I'm going to pause for 30 seconds, 45 seconds, and let you pray into that, and then I'll close in prayer in a minute. Lord Jesus, I pray for this body of believers that our love for you, our desire for you would be stronger than any other thing. That we would be so compelled by you and your kingdom and your ways that we would be willing to set things aside, to lay things aside for you. Lord, give us a taste and a glimpse of the fullness of the life that you offer, and may we not be satisfied with anything less than that. Stir us up to be a people of passion, a people who see our lives as vehicles and vessels for you and your use. And only by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, can we do this? So we ask for that too. In Jesus' name I pray.
Amen.